When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Ko-fi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack today uh, and I'm excited for a very good reason. Zach, why am I excited? Because we're talking about your not really granddad. Yay! Enough said. Um, <laughs> yeah, for those who have not gathered yet, he's not really my granddad. Who has come along to talk to us about granddad today? So today we are joined by Jill Rose, who is the author of Nursing Churchill, Wartime Life, from the private letters of Winston Churchill's nurse. So basically, we're going to find out what was wrong with Churchill at a pretty crucial phase during the war. I mean, there are many things that were wrong with Churchill, to be honest, medically, as we'll discuss. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to go there, but yeah. Um, but we're going to look very specifically at a particular period of his life. And I'm going to shut up at this point rather than issue a whole load of spoilers. Jill, it's great to have you on. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you, Zach. Nice to meet you and Alex. So I want to start with the personal connection that's kind of behind this story, because it, I think it's a really nice kind of place to begin sort of unpicking how you, you got into this. So how did you come to write about Churchill's nurse? Well, Churchill's nurse, Doris Miles, was in fact my mum, my mother. And um, it was on a visit to her in England um, in 2001, way back then, which was 11 years after my dad had died, that she showed me that she'd got this cache of letters she'd written to my dad during the war while he was serving in the Navy as a surgeon lieutenant, which covers the time in February and March of 1943, when Churchill had this severe pneumonia and she was called in to nurse him plus, of course, the months on, on, on either side. And somehow my dad had kept these letters safe, even though he was at sea and had been torpedoed. And I, I read them and I thought, gosh, you know, these are, these are absolutely fabulous. So I took the letters from mum. I transcribed them into the computer. Fortunately, she has very legible handwriting. Um, I knew sort of vaguely that mum had looked after Churchill at some time. She had this signed photograph he'd given her on the mantelpiece. 
Um, but I, I didn't really know any of the details. None of us did. I've lived abroad virtually all my adult life. I, I live in America now. And obviously, you know, when I came back on my annual visits of what did you do in the war was, was hardly ever a topic for conversation. So, you know, this was, this was all quite new to me. Um, the letters were, were really fabulous. And um, I asked mum, would you be willing for me to have them published? And she said, yes, that would be, that'd be fine, dear, but why don't you wait till after I'm dead? Okay, so, you know, I put the letters aside and didn't really think much more about them for actually what turned out to be the next 15 years. Mum died in November uh, 2016, at the age of 100, I may say. And at her uh, memorial, my sister read out some of the extracts from these wartime letters. And, you know, again, I thought, wow, this is, this is a really terrific story. It's something um, great that we have here. And I, I knew they'd be interested in a book because uh, the interest in Churchill just shows no sign of abating, right? He, there's, there's a constant stream of, of books and films and so on about him. And uh, as I'm sure you know, he was chosen as greatest Britain of all time by a popular vote in, in the BBC poll. So I thought, okay, so, um, so that spring in 2017, I sent out some letters of, of inquiry to a bunch of agents, particularly ones who listed like history and biography in their areas of interest. Um, as always is the case, many of these inquiries fell into this sort of uh, the great electronic black hole. They call it, didn't hear from them, but um, <laughs> sure it's not okay to, to just not answer emails, even if you're not interested. Just politely say no thanks. Yeah, just say, you know, at least I got your letter. But anyway, yeah. So, uh, but but you know, one um, really nice agent wrote back to me, and he said, "Why don't you?" directly contact uh, Amberley Press. They were a small independent publishing house based in Stroud and they specialize in history. So I did and um, got a very quick response back from the editor at Amberley who said, oh yeah, the, he said the letters are lovely and, and very interesting, but he said they, they lacked historical context. Um, would I be willing to supply some background narrative, you know, about, about the war, about Churchill, about the people and the events that um, my mother writes about in these letters to put put them into the um, context of the, of the wider conflict, you know, and to to draw a contrast there between the public and the private worlds. Well, of course, I was quite up to doing that. So I wrote a, a, a sample, sent it in, and um, they obviously liked it because uh, we signed a contract uh, just a few days later. So we are. then I had to get to work and actually, <laughs> actually write the thing. <laughs> you know, I didn't have a lot to do it, but it was really, um, it was very rewarding because one of the things that I did was I had to find out a lot about my family and there's a lot about the family in there. Although I'd asked mum for some of clarifications as I'd gone through the letters, there were the people she wrote about, I didn't know who they were. So I asked her about that. But when I actually came to, to do the letters, I realized there was just so much that I didn't know and that I should have asked her about. And I regret that I, I never did that and, and that I never talked to my, to my granny who had the most eventful life, to my dad. Dad didn't talk much about his wartime experiences in the Navy, but 
Again, I, I think perhaps if I had shown more interest, if I asked the right questions, he perhaps would have would have talked about it more. You know, it's a it's this is a sort of common thing when we're when we're young and we we don't really pay much attention to um, the older people talking about their lives. You know, it's it's we're like uh, as Granny banging on about the war again, and we don't really listen. We don't take it in and. It's only as we get older, at least this is my experience, the experience of my, like my baby boomer contemporaries, that we come interested in the family, in our forebears and so on. It's a shame because by that time, um, you know, they're dead. <laughs> there's, there's nobody to ask. And um, one more thing on that subject. I, I, I wish, in fact, that I, I had done the book sooner while mum was alive, despite what she said, because um, in 2005, they... Uh, set up the Churchill War Rooms Museum in London and uh, two of my mother's letters are there in the display and she was invited to the official opening and she loved it. She went, she was delighted, she was thrilled with the whole thing. And I think had I worked on the book way back when she was alive, she would have been a willing participant. She would have enjoyed working with me on it, you know, reliving what was a really important a time in her life and she could have cleared up some of the mysteries like we will never know for example what the policemen were doing in the bedroom and I would like to know but I, oh. you know, now I never will. So. Well let's talk about what we do know so let's yeah. start with some background on your mum so how did she come to be his nurse is, was this a coveted job I mean by this point he is a huge figure um, in terms of celebrity and how well known he is and how interesting <laughs> he is in the running of state how did mm. she come to be his nurse ah oh, well um churchill of course was as you say you know he was he was the top dog he got the best care available he um had his own private physician um a chap called sir charles wilson lord moran um, and Moran was very good at calling in the right specialists when they were needed in this case he he called in um, Dr. Jeffrey Marshall of Guy's Hospital, who was the acknowledged expert on these kind of respiratory diseases. And these two doctors prescribed um, bed rest, uh, lots of fluids, and a, a new sulfur drug, which were called M&B, which had a lot of very dodgy side effects, and it needed um, very careful monitoring and administration to take care of this, these side effects. So a skilled nurse was going to be needed around the clock while he had it. Okay, so yeah, um, why Doris in particular? Well, let me backtrack just a little bit. Her father, my grandfather, Harry Clayton Green, had been senior surgeon at St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington um, until 1924, when he was forced into premature retirement. He cut his finger and got rather a bad infection from um, an operating room cut. Now, of course, um, he, he, he retired, he, he moved to the Channel Islands with his wife and two young children. Uh, I say nowadays we would treat something like that with antibiotics, but they didn't have them then. And Harry died um, in 1926. The family stayed on in Jersey. Mum went to school on the mainland. She went to Godolphin Boarding School in Salisbury. Her brother George went to, to Dartmouth, became a naval engineering officer. Uh, Mum wanted to be a doctor. I, maybe that was inspired by her dad, who died when she was nine. Uh, but she'd actually failed the first MB, which is the necessary preliminary exams you have to do to get into medical school. 
So, you know, that wasn't going to, and funnily enough, she, even if she'd passed the exams and, and could have gone to medical school, she couldn't have gone to St. Mary's because in those days, it's a long story, but in those days, they weren't actually accepting female medical students. So she gave up the idea of being a doctor. Her mother, my granny May, had been a nurse. So in 1937, she started training as a nurse at St. Mary's. And she turned out to be really good at it. She always got top marks in her subject exams. The, um, the teachers, her teachers gave her glowing reviews. Her final report after her training said she was um, personable and capable, and helpful and professional. And she embodied all the best traits that, of what Florence Nightingale had called the good nurse, you know, um, observation, um, initiative, uh, perseverance. Uh, she finished her training in 1941, became a state registered nurse. And that same year, in November, she was awarded the very prestigious, very coveted gold medal for excellence in nursing. Only one person gets that, which she did. So um, now putting them together, as it turns out, Sir Charles Wilson, who is um, the Prime Minister's personal physician, happened to be Dean of the Medical School at St. Mary's, which my grandfather had been many years before. And one of my grandfather's students was the self-same Sir Charles Wilson. So obviously it was to St. Mary's that Sir Charles went when he ah. needed excellent nurses. Um, he asked the matron and the matron, you know, he, he, he asked for the finest nurse that she could send and matron selected my mum, Doris. That's how she got there. Wow, what a story. That's, that's, that's <laughs> incredible. Um, so Churchill gets pneumonia. Let's set the pneumonia aside just for a mm. moment. Because like I kind of suggested at the start, Churchill has a lot of, he, he's, he's putting his body through a lot. And, and we're not just talking about the stress of running the country through the, the, the most significant war that the nation had experienced up until that mm. moment in time. We're talking heavy drinking, a lot of smoking, <sighs> a love of good food. You know, he, he wasn't looking after his cholesterol levels. Let's, let's put it that way. So what's Churchill's general health like? And then I, I suppose the logical follow-up is how does that then work with him getting pneumonia on top? Yeah, well, of course, you know, any, <laughs> any doctor nowadays, if they had to have Winston Churchill as a patient, they would like throw up their hands in horror, no way. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he did everything wrong. He, he, he ate the wrong foods. He, he, he never did any exercise for a start. He was really sedentary, uh, say, ate, ate all the wrong foods. Um, he loved to eat. There was rationing, of course, during the war, but somehow the farms at, at Chartwell and Checkers managed to supply him with, you know, meat and eggs and, and, and cream and butter and cheese and all that stuff. So uh, unsurprisingly, he was, he was very overweight. We all seen that. Um, also unsurprisingly, he suffered from chronic indigestion. Uh, he had to take pills to sleep at night. He didn't sleep well. Um, he smoked those cigars, the huge Cuban cigars that we've seen. Oh, some people say he didn't smoke them all the thing, but there was always one there. Um, it was sort of part of his image, if you like. He had had pneumonia earlier in his life as a, as a, as a young, as a teenager, I think, but probably didn't have any bearing on this. Um, the other thing that he was susceptible to 
periods of depression, which he called his black dog. And there's been some debate about it, but I think the experts now think that it, it was not what we would term clinical depression. He didn't have any kind of psychiatric things. But uh, one thing about his health, he talked about the stress of the war. He was in uh, Washington at the, the White House in December 1941 for Christmas. In fact, it was just after Christmas. And he was pushing open a window in his bedroom when he felt some sharp pains in his chest. Now, Sir Charles Wilson, his doctor, was with him at the time, and he suspected that the prime minister had probably had a mild heart attack. He hadn't had any heart issues that we know of up till then, but you know, given the other factors, the stress and so on, that was that was very likely. So um, that put Sir Charles in a something of a dilemma because the standard prescription for, for, for that at that time would have been several weeks of bed rest. Well, you know, this was a critical time in the war. It was right after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and the American entry into the war. And having uh, Churchill uh, sidelined like that was obviously going to have a, a huge impact on his ability to work. And, you know, the whole war effort would go into a tailspin. So, it just wasn't on and it was in nobody's interest really for this news to be made public. You know, Wilson took the gamble. He figured that most likely Churchill would just recover on his own. Nobody would be any the wiser. But, you know, if he died, then Wilson would be liable. And at the, at the very least, he was toast. His professional career would be over. So he had to weigh those up. And he decided in the end that Silence was the lesser of the two evils, and he didn't say anything. He did cover it up. He never even shared the diagnosis with Churchill or his wife, Clementine. So, you know, he, he, um, he had a lot of these, um, these health issues. And, of course, you mentioned the drinking. Yes, he did, he did drink an awful lot. But the funny thing was he, he was not um, really affected by it as much as you'd expect. People do say that. Um, there's something that um, his biographer, Andrew Roberts, said, because, he, he, you know, a lot of people say, well, he probably cultivated this, this macho image, this hard drinking, cigar smoking, uh, alpha male thing. Okay, But Andrew Roberts, who's really studied Churchill, says this about him. The overwhelming evidence is that Churchill loved alcohol, drank steadily by sipping, had a hardy constitution, and was only very rarely affected by it. So he could put away all this 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 booze, you know, and really not. Yeah, the um, idea of him suffer. being basically pissed and running the country, he wasn't. No, no. In, in fact, um, Professor Alistair Vale of Birmingham University, who's made a, a lifetime study of Churchill's illnesses, say there, he does not fit any of the criteria for alcoholism. He was not an alcoholic. Um, so, you know, I think that's that's pretty thick. But, you know, he <laughs> this was a lifetime habit. He couldn't give it up. Even there he was um, faced with this life-threatening illness. And this, this, this one always makes me laugh. This is in one of the letters to my, my dad. Mum wrote this. It says, one thing that might amuse you is his fluid intake chart. It goes something like this. Remember, this guy's on death's door. Champagne, ounces 10. Brandy, ounces 2. 
orange juice, ounces eight, whiskey and soda, ounces eight, etc. Doesn't that make your tongue hang out? There seems to be no lack of alcohol here. <laughs> no. I mean, there's I mean, fruit in there. Orange juice, that's one of your five well, There you go. There you go. But you see, the doctors had prescribed, oh, you've got to take plenty of fluids. But um, somehow I, I actually really don't think <laughs> that's exactly what they had in mind. But the funny thing is, I mean, despite all this, despite all these issues, he had this extraordinarily robust constitu- constitution. You know, he... Mm. enviable stamina everyone concentrate comments on it you know how he kept going he's 68 years old and he's running circles around the younger people um he was a very hard worker he expected everybody else to work as hard as he did uh he he would take a nap in the afternoon but then he would work late into the night he would sleep just for a few hours um he had, he had pneumonia again later that year. He had it in 1944. He had a series of strokes in 1950, in the early 50s, actually, and in the early 60s. But, you know, considering all that, by the time he actually died in January 1965, um, he was 90 years old, which, yeah. considering everything, uh, it was pretty good because the average life expectancy for an Englishman at that time was actually only 69 so um, I reckon he, he did right. all right despite everything. <laughs> but let's talk about his pneumonia. Um, but in, I want to talk about your mum and his pneumonia. So mm. how, did it, how did it play out? How bad does it get? And what was her job day to day in caring for him? It, it was pretty bad. I mean, this was life-threatening pneumonia. Um, and it was particularly particularly deadly for, for a person, you know, who was overweight, sedentary, smoked, drank, and so on. Of course, you know, Churchill ticked all of those risk factors. And um, when Dr. Jeffrey Marshall, the, the lung expert, met him first, he, he said to Churchill, he said, you are very, very seriously ill. He called the, um, this pneumonia the old man's friend because it carried off people like him, you know, very quickly, very quietly. Um, Sir Charles Wilson, the doctor was so concerned that he actually moved onto the premises for duration so that he could be on hand around the clock um, if he was going to be needed. Um, In fact, the Speaker of the House of Commons got exactly the same illness at exactly the same time as Churchill, and he died two weeks later on the very same day that Churchill was setting off to um, checkers for his convalescence. Excuse me. So you asked about what the nurse did. Well, the first thing that she had to do when she got there was to bring down his fever. He had this high fever. And the nurses are trained to do that. They use um, cool or tepid sponge baths. She had to do that. Um, Then there was a medication. Now, you know, nowadays you'd give antibiotics to, um, to a pneumonia patient, of course, but they weren't really available yet in those days. It won't be commonly available for at least another year. So he was prescribed a a fairly new sulfur drug was made by this company called May and Baker. Um, The drug was actually called sulfathiazole, which is a tongue twister, as you can see. So it was always just called M&B or more specifically M&B 760. That's where it came in their um, product line. So he had to take this several times a day, and um, it was really important to maintain a constant level of the medication in the body. So one of the things that my mother had to do was 
regularly monitor his blood count, particularly um, the white cells. It was really important to see um, that that was stable. Um, one of the other side effects was that it could potentially cause a buildup of uric acid crystals in the kidneys, and that made peeing very difficult and uncomfortable. So to counter that, she would give him potassium in the form of a liquid called potassium citrate, which would help to alleviate that. And um, the fever, he had these fevers, he would get pains in his head. So she would rub uh, an oil of wintergreen, which is a, a concentrated sort of aspirin that's absorbed through the skin. She rub it into his head at night. And, well, of course, he loved that. It was sort of, you know, like a soothing head massage, right? And um, it would be something of a, a nightly ritual for them. She would uh, rub his head with this oil of wintergreen and he would sing one of his old musical songs that he really enjoyed. <laughs> and um, as mum said, uh, loud and, and rather tunelessly. <laughs> yeah, so, singing was one thing he wasn't good at. Yeah, right. He, 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 he loved to do it, but no, he would sing in his bath. He would sing while he was doing it, but no, not, not, it's a good thing he stuck to his day job. Um, so, you know, there was a lot to do. Obviously, um, one nurse, my mum couldn't do it all around the clock. So they called in a second nurse who was actually her friend and colleague from St Mary's, Dorothy Pugh. And each of them had a 12-hour shift. Mum was the more senior of the two. So she was given the more responsible positions, night nurse, because there she was on her own. In the daytime, there was the daughter, everybody was around. But at night, she was there on her own. She had to monitor the patient uh, make sure everything was uh, copacetic. And she had to use her own judgment as to whether she should wake Dr. Wilson, who was asleep downstairs, you know, should his um, condition deteriorate. Um, and I, ju I just want to say a bit more about that because, you know, nowadays um, we have nurses and medical people, they have this arsenal of, of of drugs and sophisticated medical technology. But back in the day, they didn't have that. Uh, the quality of nursing care that a patient received then could literally mean the difference um, between life and death. And, you know, nurses have often in the past been sort of unsung heroes. In mum's case, at least, it's really nice to see this belated recognition of her and, and their contribution. Um, I was lucky enough, in fact, to get the foreword of Nursing Church was written by Emma Soames, who is genuinely um, Winston Churchill's granddaughter. Mm. And she wrote this about it. Uh, Without Nurse Miles's skills, this drama could have had such a much worse outcome, not just for the prime minister personally and our family, but for the whole Western world. Now, that's a pretty glowing endorsement. And the last word I want to say is that I think all of us in this last really difficult year and a half have come to have a really much better appreciation for the skill and the dedication of, of all nurses. I hope you'll agree with that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Absolutely do. Yeah, there's, there's no question of that. You, you've sort of started touching on this already um, about Churchill and what kind of a patient he was. Because as I was writing these questions, I kind of found it hard to imagine that Churchill would be the sort of person to just do what he's told. You've talked about how, you know, he's told to take fluids. So, OK, so how many different liquors can I <laughs> squeeze into this list here? So, so give us more of a flavour of Churchill the patient. Well, his wife, Clementine, said he, she complained he was a terrible patient. He, he, he ignored what the doctor said. He, he worked whether he had a, a fever or not, you know. And um, uh, the American press reported that he was the world's worst patient. I don't know. But that, that President Roosevelt actually wrote and told him that. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't think that's entirely fair because... Um, Right from the start, when, when Dr. Marshall went, first went to see him and told him how ill he was, Churchill did say, OK, well, if I'm that ill, I will do, you know, what, what you say. Wilson didn't really think that um, he was a bad patient. He said that uh, Churchill would do what you told him as long as he had a good reason. You know, if you explained to him what you were doing and he understood what it was, then he would do it. And he, and he, he did, uh, he understood that what the doctors, what the nurses were doing was for his benefit. So he would usually comply. I mean, I, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure he could be a right pain sometimes. And, and, and mum did say he was obstinate as a mule and, and a number of times she, she did have to put her foot down, but I don't think she saw him as a difficult patient. Um, Obviously, it could be a bit stroppy, and she wasn't going to put up with that. She not no insubordination, however illustrious the patient, you know. So um, the, there was one actually um, another of these amusing incidents. She she'd been out for the day. Uh, he was supposed to do these regular lung exercises to keep the lungs clear, breathing exercises. Well, because she'd been out, she'd gone to St. Mary's for the day and he hadn't done them. So when she got back late at night, she had to get him to do the exercises. So there was this uh, kind of tussle of wills between the patient and the, the nurse. So I'll just read you a little bit about it. This is what she wrote in the middle of the night in her letter to, to my dad. There's going to be trouble over the said exercises I foresee. 
As I was away, he's only done one lot today, and he will argue, quite rightly, that 1.30 a.m. is not the time to be doing exercises. I wonder who will win. Somehow, I don't feel much like arguing tonight. I'm so tired I could go to sleep standing up. But then at half past five later on, she, she, she writes it. Well, I won the argument and the exercises were duly performed. As a matter of fact, it wasn't an argument at all. I just said, you've got to do some more exercises. He said, no, I won't. I'm too tired. So I said no more. And in about five minutes, during which time I did my best to look reproachful, he said, oh, well, if you want to, you'd better do them. Anyway, they were done. And I, I found the quote from, from Dr. Wilson. He said, um, when Winston is sick, he does what he is told, provided, of course, that he is given a good reason, which is you know, what I said. So he was, in fact, intensely in, interested in his treatment. He was always asking the doctors and nurses what it was that they were doing. Um, you, you know, he, this is, again, I've got a, a quote here. This is what he this is all from, from my mother's letters. She said, we had the M&B expert, Dr. Lyon Whitby, up from Bristol today. He did a blood count and all is well. Uh, poor old Sir Charles Wilson had to explain M&B, that's the drug, from beginning to end, its effect, composition and varieties, and then a complete account of the composition of the blood and the reaction of the white cells to the M&B treatment. The old boy doesn't miss a thing and Fox CW by asking what was the proportion of blood at the surface of his body when his temperature was 102. So um, I, I think knowing what they were doing, um, he did tend to uh, comply. His, his, um, one of his aides wasn't so, so hot about, you know, he was a good patient. His constant aide, Tommy Thompson said this, he said, um, in a high fever, Churchill will sit up in bed reading state papers and drafting memoranda. Since he regarded even temporary capitulation to any ailment as a sign of weakness, he was an impossible patient. So I don't know, you know, Clementine said he was bad. Thompson said he was bad. Um, the American press, of course, said he was bad. But no, the, 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 the medical professionals who's looking after him, the nurse, my mum, the doctor, they didn't say he was a bad patient. So, you know, uh, I leave it for the jury. <laughs> I do love that image of, Ch of Churchill just being put in his place by a sustained reproachful look. It's, it's kind of the sort of thing that you do to kids. Uh, do you know what, though? It is. It's nanny. And he would have had yes. a nanny. Oh, he did. He had yeah, a wonderful so nanny who he adored. Yes. Yeah. You, so it's nan nanny. Yeah, yeah. Daggers, you do as you're told, but uh, she's so she's in the room, isn't she? Throughout a really crucial part in history, does she get mm. any kind of insight or anything into how the government's being run or the progress of the war effort? I mean, beyond seeing how hard he works, yeah. Oh, yes, uh, she was fortunate because they very, very quickly on the right on the first from the beginning, they established a very, a very good relationship, and, and she later said that he. He treated her the whole time more as an intimate friend um, than a nurse. Um, you know, yes, of course, the war was still raging around outside. He was very heavily involved. He had to continue with his work, but he would get on it. She was, she was there. He would be on the phone while she was there. He would 
because he worked in the night, he, he would be talking and dictating and whatever, leaving um, top secret documents all around the place. It's quite interesting that most of the accounts that have been written subsequently by people who work for Churchill, they all say he, he had very little time or inclination for, um, for small talk, you know, for, for personal sort of chit-chat, discussions of any kind beyond work. But this situation with Doris was entirely different because she didn't work for Churchill. She wasn't there to, to take dictation, um, to brief him on anything. She, like you say, she was sort of more of a nanny. She was, she was there to look after him. Um, she was there in, in, in the nighttime. There was nobody else there. It was just the two of them. And he was a, a very erratic sleeper. I already mentioned he had to take sleeping pills. So there was plenty of sort of downtime in the night when he was you know, a little bit fuzzy, but very relaxed. And they would chat, they would talk. According to what she said, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. The war, the progress of the war. Yes, they would talk about that. They would talk about current affairs. Uh, she mentions um, religion, dreams. He would talk about his illness. He, he made up um, funny words for uh, the the the. Uh, blood, the molecules in his blood and so on. Um, so they would have these chats all the time. Um, they had uh, personal stuff as well. He would ask her about her family. He, he was very interested to know that her husband, my dad, Roger, was serving in the Navy. Um, obviously, he had a, a soft spot for Navy, having been mm -hmm. you know, Lord of the Admiralty herself, himself. So um, they had these long rambling conversations in the middle of the night. Uh, this is, this is uh, one that she, she reports on. I'll I read a little, little bit of a quote. Been having a long chat with the old boy. He's been telling me his daily habits. Do you know he stays in bed until noon, sleeps from three to five, never goes anywhere before five and never goes to bed before two in the morning. We have also discussed the progress of the war and the beverage report. Give me a little time and he'll get my views on the Rushcliffe report on nursing. The beverage report was very interesting because that, in fact, was the genesis of the whole National Health Service that came after the war. Mum would have had a keen interest in that. Obviously, she was smart. She had uh, quite well-developed opinions of her own. So she got on famously with Churchill and they had these, these wonderful conversations and I don't know about you, but I sure would like to have been a fly on the wall and listen to, listen to some of those. I think it's one thing he isn't, I mean, despite some pretty horrendous quotes about women and voting from way, way further back. He had married a feminist and he was not a misogynist. There's no yeah. question of sort of refer, like, or sort of regarding her as just just a nurse. Mm, no, he, he, he didn't. He um he, he was comfortable around people like her. Well, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, he was married to this extraordinary woman, Clementine, who she could have been prime minister herself in a different era, I think. But there's also something about people like Churchill, like people who are competent, who are good at their job. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's no question that your mum was eminently qualified to treat him through, through that illness. And presumably he kind of respected that, saw that ability and kind of responded to it accordingly. 
Definitely. And I'm sure that's how he reacted to many people. He he recognized competence. Um, he, what did they say, didn't suffer fools gladly, but he did understand when people were good at their job and he let them get on and do it. And she obviously was. And, yeah. So what ultimately happened to Doris after her time nursing Churchill? Well, um, Dad came back from the Navy later that year in the fall of 1943. He um, had been at sea for several years, so he now got a shore job in the West Country. And Mum quit St Mary's, moved down to be near him. And um, she had her first child the following summer, my elder sister, Vicky. And funnily enough, um, Churchill came down with pneumonia again that summer in August of 1944. He needed a nurse. So Charles wanted him to have a nurse to go with him to uh, Canada on the ship for for a meeting with um, President Roosevelt. Obviously, mum wasn't available. Otherwise, I think they might have asked her again. But in the abs- her absence, they in- actually asked for Dorothy Pugh, the colleague who had been there with them at the time. Um, so she gave up nursing. She had four children, of whom I'm the second. And um, in 1952, my dad was uh, offered a job at the medical school at the hospital in the new fledgling University of the British West Indies in Kingston, Jamaica. So I say they had these four children. So the whole family got packed off in a banana boat and sailed off to Kingston, where we stayed for, for five years. It was absolutely smashing. And in 1953, it was just not more than a few months after they had arrived, Winston came to visit the university. And he was shown around the, the campus, you know, by the top chaps, not dad. Um, and he... Obviously, just never knew that, in fact, mum, who had looked after him was 10 years before, was there in the audience, in the spectators, but he never knew that. And, and in fact, they never actually crossed paths again. Um, she raised us, became, you know, a, a mother. But one thing, um, he hadn't forgotten her because uh, a few months later, in fact, after the uh, pneumonia, her brother-in-law, who was my father's younger brother, Richard Miles, he was attached to the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. And um, Winston was over there on another of his visits, and he was having dinner in the White House, and Richard was invited. He was a friend of Eleanor Roosevelt's, and he was invited to the White House to join them and meet Winston. And he wrote to Dad about it in, in just a, a short um, thing. He said... He met Winston, who was in terrific form, delighted to know that I was Nurse Miles's brother-in-law and asked me to remember him to her. He said that she'd looked after him wonderfully. So, um, you know, he didn't forget, but no, they never, they never did cross, cross paths again. I'm also curious on a more personal level, what do the letters reveal about the relationship between your mum and your dad and kind of did you view their relationship differently reading these? Did you kind of discover aspects of their personalities that you hadn't necessarily known about before? Well, you know, obviously it puts the um, relationship in new light. It gives you a whole new insight because this is from a period in their lives when they were young, they were in love, they had their whole lives ahead of them. And, you know, 
me and my siblings were not in the picture yet. <laughs> I think that makes a huge difference. Um, it was quite a romantic story because both of them had been at, done their training at St. Mary's, but they didn't actually meet until the beginning of the Blitz in September 1940. They were on night duty together at the operating theatre and waiting for the victims of the bombing to be brought in. They were ready and they fell in love. Um, they got married. They stayed in love for 48 years. And one thing that comes over, I think, in the letters is that they were always the most important person in each other's lives. That never changed. And I think we knew that even when they had kids, you know, they loved us and all, but they were, they were the center. They were soulmates. There's absolutely no question. And I think this really comes through in these letters. Um, and I think the other thing that was surprising is, you know, we were familiar with the characteristics that made our mother such a good nurse. She was, she was very patient. Uh, she was terribly capable, competent, stoical and so on, but she was never very demonstrative. Although, you know, we knew she loved us and we were very, very happy and a happy childhood. But one thing that comes over in the letters, which was a real surprise, is this underlying passion that is there, you know, um, and you think, oh, that's my mum and dad, <laughs> which is interesting. She was obviously much more, um, let us say, warm blooded than perhaps in later life she appeared. And, you know, another thing is that I never knew, none of the family ever knew, as far as I know, that she'd actually miscarried her first child, which must have caused her a lot of grief. Um, but there's a lot more to that. Richard Langworth, who's head of the Churchill Project in, in um, America, he said that the ch uh, Nursing Churchill is much more than a Churchill book. And there is a lot more, you know, the, the subtitle is Wartime Life. And there's a lot in it about literally wartime life, how they got through. But there, there's parties, there's weddings, there's shopping, you know, despite all the, the hardships, the restrictions, and so on, they, they, they try to enjoy themselves. And one thing that comes over again is how, how sociable my mother was. She, she enjoyed all this activity. She, she was a, a party creature, which was, um, again, slightly surprising. It, it's a real shame that none of dad's letters survived because it would love to have seen what he wrote. You know, this is sort of one-sided. Um, and, and when I was putting the book together, I did ask mum about that. I said, you know, what happened to dad's letters? And, you know, she was really a little upset that she said, I, I, I don't know. I cannot for life of me remember when dad's letters disappeared. She figured it was probably in one of these moves, you know, after the war, the family moved several times. My own suspicion is perhaps that the letters got left in London along with a, a bunch of their things, um, with my granny when they moved to Jamaica. And I, I'm, I'm guessing she did clear out quite a lot of the stuff. And I'm, I'm thinking the letters probably, you know, got, got pitched at that sort of that time. But I, I'd said about how one of the most rewarding um, parts of this was, you know, finding out about mum and dad, but also about other um, relatives, about my granny, my aunties, my uncles, and I, you know, I would spend hours when doing the research, hunched over the computer, digging around the historical records, sort of finding out everything I could about these antecedents that, you know, I'd never, never heard of some of them. And it's a shame, you know, you wish you'd been able to talk to them, that you'd known them when they were alive. But I might just a very slight digression here, because 
one of my favorite relatives was my um, father's younger brother, Richard Miles. I've mentioned him before. He was in Washington. I knew him quite well. He has an important supporting role in nursing Churchill. And he's part of this ongoing story. He, he was posted to Washington, 1942. He spent um, several years there. He was befriended by Eleanor Roosevelt. He met and, and famously slightly sparred with Churchill. Uh, and then he worked in the fledgling UN on controlling the spread of nuclear weapons. He became an expert on that. And he was a colleague of the very notorious Soviet spy Donald McLean, who defected with Guy Burgess in 1951. Um, now Richard died in 1997, but a few years ago, I got from my cousin a bunch of his papers. And in those was... Uh, a number of drafts of an unpublished novel that he had written based on those wartime experiences. Now, I and mentioned my uncle and, and all of this stuff in some of the presentations that I'd given a couple of years ago on Nursing Churchill, and a number of people had encouraged me to write about him. So last year, when you know we were hunkered down in our metaphorical bunkers, right, I, I got out all these drafts of the manuscripts, and I I transcribed it and I revised it and edited and rewrote um, quite a lot of it. And we ended up with a book, which is called, plug here, please note, Requiem for a Spy by uh, Richard Miles. Can you see it? Can you see it there? Richard yeah. Miles and Jill Rose. Um, I'm delighted to say that no less a, a personage than Andrew Roberts has given a glowing endorsement to um, Requiem. He uh, said that Requiem for a Spy succeeds on all levels. He said, because it's based on this life experience, it's an important historical uh, document as well as a, a you know, smashing novel. Uh, and he's compared it very favorably to the work of Eric Ambler and Somerset Maugham. So, you know, I'm very pleased about that. And it's going to be available on Amazon on September the 16th, which coincidentally, is the day after the Nursing Churchill paperback is available. So uh, two books in two days. I, you know, I'm pretty chuffed about that. <laughs> That's End pretty of good End going. Of yeah. No, no. We'll, we will try and make sure both of them are available on our uh, History Hack bookshop as well. We do. Yes, that would, be, that would be very kind of you. Thank you, Alex. That would be great. Jill, thank you so much for this, because it's been not only a really interesting kind of journey through Churchill's health and kind of a realisation of kind of how fragile he was and, and just kind of encourages our listeners to dwell on how differently things could have turned out if your mum hadn't been such an adept nurse. But it's also been a really nice kind of journey through your own personal kind of family history. And I think that will hopefully encourage others to go in and have a little bit of a dig. I'm not sure whether they'll necessarily come across with like the, the new equivalent of James Bond, which they can turn into a novel, <laughs> but you never know. So Nursing Churchill, as you said, is available um, in paperback form um, any day now. The subtitle is Wartime Life from the Private Letters of Winston Churchill's Nurse, and it's available on our bookstore or from Ambly Publishing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye bye. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. 
You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.